If you identify as a perfectionist, I think you're going to like today's episode. For years, I bought into this story that my perfectionism was something I needed to fix or get rid of. Even in episodes of this very podcast, I have labeled myself a recovering perfectionist. Uh, I don't know if this resonates, but my recovery from perfectionism, and I'm using air quotes here, has caused major frustration because try as I might, even with sheer willpower, I have been unable to root out my perfectionistic tendencies. Those just got pushed underground into the realm of, um, I'll secretly have those feelings, but I'll try to appear more cool about it. If any of this resonates with you, you're going to love today's guest, Catherine Morgan Schaffler, who is a New York-based psychotherapist, writer, and speaker. She's also the author of one of my top books for 2023, The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. This episode was so good and went on for so long, I'm breaking it into two parts. So today, you're going to learn about how to identify if you are, in fact, a perfectionist. What are some of the signs? You're also going to learn why there is no recovering from perfectionism and why there's no need to. I've been studying perfectionism for years, and Catherine's insights on this blew my socks off. Finally, you'll learn about the five types of perfectionist and the upsides and challenges of each. This bit is so much fun. You'll be able to self-identify which one you think you are. I'm a hybrid of three, I think. And at the end of this episode, I'll share what's coming up in part two of my conversation with Catherine, so stay tuned for that. Before we launch in today, hello, I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, and Enough is a show for anyone whose life looks shiny and successful on the outside, but inside, you're secretly exhausted, you're burnt out. In spite of all your stellar achievements, you still never feel good enough, and you wonder if you ever will. These are the leadership conversations that nobody is having, the underbelly of what looks so impressive to the outside world, the perfectionism, the people-pleasing, the inner critic, the self-doubt, all of those thoughts that may circulate in your mind at 2am about whether or not you'll ever be enough. Welcome, I'm so glad that you're here. I drop us right into the conversation where Catherine is explaining how someone might know if they're actually a perfectionist. So perfectionism operates on a continuum and it's context dependent in some cases. And so when I use the phrase perfectionist, what I'm talking about is somebody who can see the reality plunked down in their lap and they can see this better in some way reality ahead of them. And they notice that gap, right? With whatever it is that they're looking at and they feel an active, that is a key part of knowing, you know, that you're a perfectionist instead of an idealist, for example, they feel an active impulse to bridge the gap more often than not. So you're really looking for not, can I see the Delta? Because a lot of people can, that's the difference between an idealist and a perfectionist is an idealist says, oh, I see that version of reality. And wouldn't that be nice? A perfectionist sees it and says, I see that version of reality. Wouldn't that be nice? And now I need to do something about it. And the more often than not is a big one, because it might not be all the time that you feel this compulsion to actively work towards whatever it is that you are trying to, whatever ideal you're striving towards. 
but it's more often than not. What we're looking for is really a pattern, not so much you are this 100% of the time. If you ever answered that, what would you say is your weakness question in a job interview with the slightly smug, oh, I'm a perfectionist, you might be wondering what is actually the problem with identifying in this way? Perhaps it has felt like a secret weapon of your success. Maybe it's been a key part of your winning strategy. A recent article in the BBC by Amanda Ruggeri cites research from Thomas Curran and Andrew Hill about rates of perfectionism. It's the first study to compare perfectionism across generations. So in a nutshell, the average college student these days is way more likely to have perfectionistic tendencies than a student in the 1990s or the early 2000s. So what, you ask? Well, the same article says that perfectionists tend to die earlier. Gordon Fleet, who has studied perfectionism for more than three decades, says, and I quote, perfectionists are pretty much awash with stress. Even when it's not stressful, they'll typically find a way to make it stressful, end quote. Oof. Well, that's worth a thought in a world where mental health is an ever-present concern. By the way, that BBC article is linked in the show notes. So I asked Catherine if perfectionism is all about achieving goals, nailing the deal, getting the promotion, winning at life. To me, it's often felt a bit deflating and anticlimactic after reaching a goal for the, you know that you've been absolutely sure would be life-changing. So there's this big buildup that drives the relentless push. But then the pent-up expectation doesn't often match the reality. True story. As a young woman, when I lived in Canada, I was planning a trip to Europe and I was so incredibly excited to see the Mona Lisa in real life. I saved money for nearly a year. And I remember standing there feeling a bit meh. I couldn't get anywhere near it. In my mind, it was going to be just me and the Mona Lisa. And then it was tiny and there were people everywhere. It was, you know, didn't match my image of what I had pushed myself for. So I stood there thinking about what I was going to have for lunch, fantasizing about the best pasta ever. Catherine, what is going on there? Whenever a perfectionist achieves a goal, they always create another goal, a bigger goal, because they are not really striving to achieve goals. Their goals are a representation of the ideal that they're striving towards. And you can't be a perfectionist without being ambitious. And it's a thing that all ambitious people do is they all feel, and I think this is a good thing, that there's so much more ahead of them than behind them. And so you achieve a goal and then you see, you know, not just one more goal ahead of you, but a hundred more, and you want to achieve them all. And whether you can be in that experience in a healthy way or an unhealthy way, that speaks to how you're managing your perfectionism. For years, I felt the need to recover from my perfectionism, like it was something to be eradicated. So lower your standards, leave the dishes in the sink, drop a few balls. It sounds so deceptively easy. I asked Catherine if we can ever recover from perfectionism. So one key thing to understand about perfectionism is that a perfectionist, that identity is an enduring identity marker. So thinking of yourself as a perfectionist is like thinking of yourself as a romantic or an activist or an artist. It's an identity we tend to hold on to 
throughout the course of our lives and research backs that up. And so when you tell a perfectionist to just stop being so much of a perfectionist, you're really painting them into a corner because they're experiencing their perfectionism in a deep, more visceral way. And we don't talk about perfectionism episodically for that reason either. Meaning we might say something like, oh, I went through a depression after college or after I had my baby or whatever it may be. But we don't say I went through a perfectionism, right? We talk about it from the context of I, I am this. And so it is not helpful or effective to try to get rid of your perfectionism. It doesn't work. Perfectionism is a power and it is a power that is too powerful to use a method of eradication, which is like, let me get rid of this or chip away at it until it until it's gone from me. That's not going to happen. And it's an exercise in futility. And worst of all, I think it's such a profound waste of your energy. There's not only nothing wrong with you for having perfectionistic tendencies, but you can use perfectionism to your advantage if you give yourself the chance to understand the construct more, how the construct plays out in your life, interpersonally, in your thoughts, in your feelings, in your behaviors. You know, there's so much opportunity that I don't think people take to really seize the power in their perfectionism. Andrew Hill, a researcher quoted in the BBC article that I referred to earlier, says, and I quote, perfectionism isn't a behavior. It's a way of thinking about yourself. Hmm. You may have noticed that part of that thinking often involves that vitriolic, critical voice that goes for the jugular. It doesn't offer you any constructive criticism and support. It goes for your character. You're embarrassing yourself. You're hideous. You're woefully inadequate. You're disgusting. Give up. You know, that kind of thing. I asked Catherine what it might look like to suss out the upside of our perfectionism. What should we be on the lookout for? Adaptive perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism are the terms that the research world uses to explain healthy iterations and expressions of perfectionism and unhealthy ones. So maladaptive are the unhealthy ones and adaptive are the healthy ones. And as you said, this is a fluid construct, meaning, you know, we might get to work and encounter a problem based on you know, something someone said at a meeting, now we have more information and it's setting our mind into some kind of panic. And so we're immediately, despite the fact that we've been in a healthy space for the last few days, we're immediately contracting and thinking in a way that's maladaptive, right? And so when you do that, again, that's normal. It's okay, What's not okay is to not be aware that that's happening and then to actually base your sense of who you are on those feelings and thoughts, right? Uh, let, let me just give you an example to bring it back down. Let's say you're in a meeting and someone asks you a question and when you answer the question, you answer it in a way where you feel like, oh my God, 
how could I answer the question? Like, I can't believe I said that. Now they're asking you more questions. Well, what do you mean? Didn't you think about X factor? And then you're, you're kind of painted into a corner in your mind of, oh my gosh, I can't believe I had this oversight. Then you get just narrower and narrower and narrower. I'm so stupid. You're making character judgments. Everyone in here thinks I'm stupid. Now I'm not going to be chosen for this thing. That means I'm unworthy. Like all just spiral, spiral, spiral. And it's so, it can happen in a snap and happens to everybody. You know, we're very emotional creatures. And especially if you're tired, if you're around people who don't feel support you or understand your strengths, if you yourself are in a moment where you're really questioning your capabilities and you're having a difficult time staying tethered to your own sense of trust and faith in yourself, those moments where you're flooded with maladaptive thoughts and feelings and subsequent behaviors can happen in an instant. You know I love practical action here on the pod, so let's get out the yellow highlighter. I'm hearing Catherine say that awareness is key. So noticing, for instance, that you're sliding into unrealistic standards or that you're making jabs at your character, the whole you're so stupid, that type of thing, or catastrophizing, something like, I said that idiotic thing in the meeting and now I'll never get promoted, I'll probably get fired, noticing that spiral taking off. And noticing also if you're basing your worth on performance where, oops, that didn't go so well, that failed, slides into the maladaptive self-assessment of I'm a failure. This kind of character assassination can feel like a motivator. And Charlotte Fowles talked about that in episode 47, where she she recalled trying to motivate herself to lose weight by being unkind to herself, calling herself fat and disgusting. So this kind of maladaptive perfectionism is toxic because it looks like it's about driving for success, but it's really focused on avoiding failure and judgment and rejection. There's this underlying belief that approval from others is conditional and that it depends on a flawless performance or on attaining an ideal. Okay, so noticing those maladaptive behaviors is key. And when we've noticed that we've gone into character judgment, what can we do next, Catherine? So when in doubt, deploy self-compassion. And that is such a simple and sometimes difficult directive for two reasons. One, as I talk about in my book, simple is not always easy, right? And two, we don't know what self-compassion is, really. We don't know what it looks like. We don't focus on emotional literacy in our curriculum in this country, in our education. So we hear words like boundaries and self-compassion, all these things. We're typically in our late teens, if not, you know, late 20s. And so self-compassion is a three-step resiliency building tool that you can deploy at any moment. And even if you only do two of the steps, that would be good. But it's really the most effective balm for those moments where your world just gets contracting, 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 and you want to instead get to a place of safety, broader perspective, expansion, 
You need self-compassion to do that. You can't think your way into those places. I've tried really hard mm-hmm. to think my way. <laughs> All of us have. I mean, and it seems like you should be able to because it feels like, well, my thoughts got me there. So my thoughts should get me out of it. And the problem with using that purely intellectual approach is that, yes, your thoughts got you there, but that's not all that got you there. The undercurrent of the thoughts and where those thoughts were born from is a fear of not being enough and an insecurity about your sense of value, or if we take that word a little deeper, your sense of self-worth. And that's where the thoughts are coming from. And so the, you know, healing balm to that needs to come from an undercurrent of being really strongly tethered to your self-worth and to connection with other people and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You can't just say, I am great. I am worthy. I deserve happiness in life. It's like, it just doesn't, register, especially not in those 2 a.m. moments where, you know, the walls are coming in on you. Those, my sister and I have this expression where it's like, we've been saying this since we were kids. It's everything's more dramatic at night. Like let the light of day hit this problem and it's still going to be a problem, but this is not going to feel like this, you know? And that's a self-compassionate thing to say because it's sort of one element of the three steps of self-compassion is kindness. And kindness doesn't have to offer a solution. It just has to offer connection, a connection to a kinder approach to yourself from yourself, you know? Is this what happens for you too? I am curious because I know when I get into that place, there's almost um, a steeliness, but yet Mm. simultaneously there's a brittleness it's maybe hmm. the brittleness is underneath covered with the veneer of steeliness. And I never remember, although I've read them 7,000 times and I've had podcast episodes on this and this guests talking about it, but in the heat of the moment at 2 a.m., I never remember those three steps. And then I'm, oh, I can't even remember the steps. What's wrong with you? And it just makes the thing even bigger. So a kindness for me, it doesn't really matter for me anyway where it starts from, but the simple act, even if I'm laying there being an absolute jerk to myself, the simple act of putting my hand on my heart mm-hmm. and just deepening and softening my breathing and closing my eyes, meaning mm-hmm. that I'm going into my inner world. Yeah. And sometimes just like gently rubbing the way that imagine if I was holding a child that I would hold the back of their head or rub their back. Mm-hmm. That creates a softness and it tends to melt that brittleness mm-hmm. a little bit. So does it have to be a three-step thing that you're grappling for in the middle of the night or what could it look no, like in real life? A, it's such a great point that you're bringing up and, and doing something kind can be just that. You know, Dr. Krista Neff, who is like the expert, expert, expert on self-compassion. She literally wrote all the books on it. She calls that sympathetic touch, right? You're comforting yourself. And if you can try to get your hand to be skin to skin. And she says, and I talk about it in the book too, you, you might feel silly doing this. It might feel 
so foreign to you and like it's not going to do anything. But your parasympathetic nervous system doesn't register whether someone else is physically comforting you or not. So she offers that hand to heart technique um, and that supportive touch technique. That's one of them that she offers. The other one is in between your arm from your shoulder to your elbow. If you just go like that, like even just the friction of that can in those moments where your world is closing in on you, disrupt some of the piling on of all the negativity. So to answer your question, absolutely not. You don't need to full stop, hit the brakes. And you, you know, I don't think that is a useful goal. And I think that that goal has a lot of perfectionism in it, ironically, right? I need to 100% stop feeling like shit so that then I know that I'm in a better space. No, focus on disruption. And with disruption, you're not necessarily trying to stop it. You're trying to disrupt it enough so that you can begin to get glimpses and flashes of other perspectives and glimpses and flashes of the fact that this one moment is not a moment that has to dictate the rest of your day or the rest of your week or whatever it may be, you know, be a commentary on your relationship, on your whole professional identity, whatever you're attaching to that moment that's big and huge and feels so overwhelming. When you disrupt it, it's like chopping up the thing you're attaching to it so that it doesn't have so much power. Here's what I'm taking away from what Catherine just said. Number one, don't believe your middle of the night catastrophizing thoughts. Everything is way more dramatic at night. How true is that? Number two, self-compassion doesn't need to have a solution attached. It just needs to offer connection, even if it's with yourself. That thought drops my shoulders two inches. Number three, it's not about doing self-compassion perfectly. Focus on the disruption of that critical thought. So try that skin-on-skin, hand-on-heart exercise when you're being really jerky with yourself or the self-hug. So put your hands on your opposite shoulders as if you were giving yourself a hug. So your arms look like an X across your chest and slowly rub your upper arms up and down, up to the elbow, between the shoulder and the elbow. If you want more of these practical ideas, head back to episode 32 with Sarah Norad. She had a treasure trove of those, including that very exercise. To finish part one of my conversation with Catherine, she's going to explain the five types of perfectionist, and you'll find a quiz link in the show notes to find out which one you are, and you might be a hybrid of a couple of types. Let's find out which ones resonate with you. I love talking about the five types. So the five types of perfectionist are the classic, and that's, I think, the type that's closest to what we think of when we think of what is a perfectionist, right? maybe very buttoned up, structured. These types are highly reliable. They add structure to any system that they enter into, whether that's work or family or planning a trip. And on the con side, because each of these types has its advantages and liabilities, on the con side, classic perfectionists can be taken for granted and feel taken for granted because they are the people that everyone knows are going to do the thing that they said they're going to do. And 
you know, classic perfectionists take a lot of joy in their perfectionism. They like it. They like doing things and doing them well. That doesn't mean that those things aren't hard or that they don't want to be appreciated for it. And because they're so reliable and you just know, oh, this person's always going to do that, it's easy to take them for granted. And also there can be a sense of a high level of sort of being transactional and interpersonal kind of engagements to where classic perfectionists can feel left out for those reasons, right? So then we have procrastinator perfectionists. And these are people who, in in essence, want the beginning of something to be perfect before they start, right? So on the pro side, these people are great at preparing, great at seeing a scenario from a 360 degree angle. You know, really thoughtful people can understand all the contingencies involved. On the con side, their preparative measures can spill past the point of diminishing returns and they end up over-preparing such that they are never actually starting the thing that they want to start. And what was so interesting to me in this work and really exploring this was that it doesn't matter if the procrastinator perfectionist is trying to start something that's technically you know, aversive, like doing your taxes, or if it's planning a trip. It doesn't matter if it's something desirable or not. The sort of paralysis is still there. And so that was really interesting. And then you have the counterpart to the procrastinator perfectionist, which is the messy perfectionist. And messy perfectionists, unlike procrastinator perfectionists, are in love with starting. I say that they're start happy. They can start a million things. And the advantage to this personality type is that there's no anxiety in the starting. They push past it. It's not even there for them. They're just pure excitement. On the con side, when they get to the inevitable tedium of the middle of the process, when the middle isn't perfect, which it never is, they really feel a sense of they're disenchanted. They feel stuck suddenly. They feel like giving up because the middle is not matching this romanticized perfect beginning. And this can be true for dating, right? Some people hate the first and second date. A messy perfectionist love it. It's like, yes, I love that. This is like anything is possible. And I don't know anything that's wrong with this person yet. <laughs> and then you learn something that about that person on maybe the fourth date or something. And, and they're like, oh, this isn't going to be a perfect relationship. I'm out. You know, so that's the risk is, is like you could abandon ship prematurely. And the real con of that is that messy perfectionists can begin to spin a narrative of nobody ever takes me seriously. I can't follow through on anything. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not smart enough. Whatever it is, all of those are just in your head. It's just that you need more help in the middle of the process, just like a procrastinator perfectionist needs more support beginning a process, right? Then there's the intense perfectionist. And this is like the public persona of, let's say, a Steve Jobs or Gordon Ramsay or Anna Wintour. These people are people who want the end of the process to be perfect. So they're focused on the outcome. 
they have a goal in mind, they have an outcome that they want to achieve, and they have razor sharp focus in staying true to that process. They can be very efficient. They don't care about people pleasing, so they're effortlessly direct. The problem is that sometimes intense perfectionists can take their high standards and sort of mutate them into impossible standards and then impose those standards on other people in addition to themselves and not take care of themselves very well or the people around them very well in the process of getting to this goal. So it's like, congratulations, you met all your Q4 goals, but half of your team is going to quit in two months because this is a miserable place to work because nobody wants to work like this, you know? And then the Parisian perfectionist is the last one. This kind of perfectionism is really interesting because it plays out interpersonally. So we think of high achievers as people who want to achieve in traditionally, let's say academic achievement or quantifiable markers like rank, speed, money. Parisian perfectionists, their ideal is ideal connection. So they really want perfect connection. And again, that's also not possible, but it's a nice ideal to shoot for in that Parisian perfectionists are naturally warm. They're naturally inclusive. They will go out of their way, for example, to engage the person alone at the party. You know, they are working really hard on connecting to themselves, their real self, their true self, connecting to others. And they do have a lot of wonderful, high quality relationships in the best iteration of this. The con is that sometimes they try to take a shortcut to authentic connection, which looks like a lot of people pleasing, and that can become really toxic. And so not only have they not achieved their goal of connecting to the other person, they have disconnected from themselves in the process. And in my opinion, that's the most dangerous thing is you're being all things to all people and you don't even know who you are anymore. So as you were speaking and as I was reading the book, I was I would read one and I'd be like, that's totally me. Mm-hmm. And then I would read the second one. I'm like, oh, and I would read the third one. I'd be like, no, 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 this is totally me. So right. is it possible that we are a fruit salad of perfectionist types? Yeah, like I said, I it operates on a continuum and it's context-based. It's it's a little bit like, do you know the five love languages? So I think one is primarily dominant, right? I tend to live in like messy perfectionism, but there's a quiz at perfectionistguide.com where you can kind of see your whole profile. And then my second most powerful type is the Parisian one. And then I'm like 10% intense. <laughs> And say, you know, and like with love languages, for example, I'm an acts of service person, but I also like words of affirmation. And, you know, I'm not at all like really a gifts person, you know, I'm not at all a procrastinator perfectionist. I have a bias towards action. And sometimes I take too much action too quickly, hence my messy perfectionism. And I really need help in the follow through. You can read more about each type in Catherine's book, and this is more than just a fun exercise. Each profile has a set of valuable gifts that come naturally to each type of perfectionist. 
So when you understand that, you can harness the upside and be really aware of the potential downside and avoid falling into those pits. So you can also go onto the show notes on my website and do Catherine's quiz and find out. You might be a hybrid of perfectionist types. I was. I have three types. So if I stick with one of my dominant types, which is the messy perfectionist, surprised me because I'm a very tidy person, but I realized that's not what it's about. At the beginning of any new project, I am in my happy place because I'm generating ideas. I'm confetting possibilities around more than I could ever possibly see through to completion. So I know that I'm in my zone of genius at the beginning, generating ideas, and I'm likely to fizzle out. The danger zone for me is when it gets hard or boring or when I'm getting to the completion of it. So 90% of the grief of any project often comes in the last 10% of that project, right? And that's when I now know that I'm likely to fizzle out. So I can get extra resource for that. I can get extra support for that. So do do the quiz, check her book out, and you'll find out more on how to optimize and make the best and use your perfectionism for good. I think that's what she means when she says perfectionism is meant to be celebrated, I'm holding off Catherine's Brick of Wisdom till after part two of our conversation. So take her quiz and dive into her book until then. And in the next episode, we're talking about practical solutions for overthinkers and overdoers and how we manage that potential dark side of our perfectionism. In the meantime, who do you know who would benefit from this conversation? Who's that one perfectionistic person in your life that might be fun, especially to share the quiz bit with? Thank you so much in advance for sharing. All of Catherine's details are on my website in the show notes. And before you leave Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please go ahead and hit follow on the show so you don't miss the next episode. Let Catherine and I know on Instagram which perfectionist type you are, and let's dive deeper again in two weeks. As ever, thanks for listening.